0: Plan was dear listener. I'm Michael Rakowitz, Artisan Director of Radio Silence, a broadcast about Iraq and its displacements, presented by Mural Arts Philadelphia, with major support from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage, and additional support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Hummingbird Foundation. Project collaborators include the Prometheus Radio Project, as well as many agencies and nonprofits that work on refugee and veteran issues and community media. Radio Silence is made in collaboration with the Vibrance Iraqi community of Philadelphia and Iraq War veterans who are part of Warrior Writers, a Philadelphia based community of military service members, artists, allies, and healers dedicated to creativity and wellness. Bajat al Wahed, dubbed the Walter Cronkite of Iraq, and his wife Haifa Abdelkader, also a broadcaster arrived as refugees in the city of brotherly love in 2009. The program became a portrait of Iraq in miniature as Bajat fell ill with a serious respiratory ailment after our first recording session, necessitating an emergency tracheostomy. The voice of Iraq lost its voice. Months later, Bajat Wahed passed away. Our host has become a ghost, another casualty of the war. At his funeral, Bajat's friends spoke about how our project was even more important now. The show must go on, they insisted, to illustrate just how much of the country was slipping away, to resist cultural amnesia, to hold on to the best of what Iraq was and what their new lives as Americans would be. And so we begin episode three, The Hushed, The Secret. We start with a snippet of a video I made of Bajat, our anchor who passed away last year. In January 2015, he hosted us along with his close friends, Mayada and Mohammed. Mayada, an artist and architect from Baghdad, fled Iraq with Mohammed and their four children for Syria before arriving in Philadelphia. Bajat playfully grabbed a crystal trophy in the shape of a microphone. One of his many awards, and began mock interviewing Mayada.
1: Very, very, very happy. What you said about your husband? Uh, Have you
2: any any uh, comment? Good comments? Yes.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Yes. Answer. Okay, it's faithful. <laughs> How is your name? What is your name? <laughs> what
1: is your name? Mm. Yes. Just you look, this yeah. machine very small. Yeah. Everyone afraid from this one. Yeah. Yes, you are Believe right. me, we. Mm. all... Uh, ministers. The microphone
3: is yes. minister. Yes. He's minister oh, yeah.
1: Professor in uh, university. Yes, of course. Yeah. Awesome. Mr. How are you? Uh,
4: uh, yeah. Shaking. <laughs> <The Barabi. laughs> as you
0: just heard, Bajat speaks about the way a microphone can create silence and is a powerful weapon. Going on record is dangerous and has consequences in Iraq and also for Iraqis here, as we will find out a bit later. First, I'd like to introduce you to my mother, Ivan David Rakowitz. Born in Bombay in 1945 to Iraqi Jewish parents, she emigrated to the United States when she was about 18 months old. My mother is the biggest influence on my artistic practice. She made sure that the best things about Iraq, which my grandparents Nassim and Renee had to leave behind in 1946 for political reasons— survived and flourished in our household. One of those things was the Arabic language, which my mother speaks fluently. However, as you'll hear in this interview, she learned it secretly and silently.
3: We came here when I was a year and a half old, and basically the language that was spoken at home with the children was English. But whenever my parents wanted to speak privately, they spoke in Arabic. And I, as a child, would ask my parents, what does this mean? What does this mean? Picking out words. Doing that, I picked up the language unbeknownst to my parents. We went to Israel in 1966. I was left in the Dan Hotel by myself in Tel Aviv. My parents had gone out, but this elderly aunt of mine named Auntie Masuda came to the Dan Hotel looking for my father and my mother. And the reception desk called me, and they said to me, there's somebody here that's looking for your parents. And, you know, I went to see who it was and she points to herself she goes, Masuda, Masuda and so I said oh, Auntie Masuda and I started to speak to her in English of course she didn't speak English she only spoke Hebrew and Arabic and since I could not converse in Hebrew I had to make use of my Arabic and I I started speaking to her in Arabic and we were there together for anywhere between, I guess, 15 minutes to a half an hour before my parents finally came. And they walked in, and they said, Oh, we're so sorry, blah, blah, blah. And she says, Oh, not to worry. I was here with Yvonne. We had a nice conversation. And my mother was like, her eyes were open, and her mouth was open, and she could not say a word. It was like, Oh... (laughs) It was it was a nice surprise for them and I was embarrassed. I mean my my mother tried to get me to speak Arabic with her and as my mother got older we would speak in Arabic because I had young children around and there were things that you know she would tell me it was a nice thing and I wish they were still around to be able to converse with but...
0: My mother's story about her secret knowledge of Arabic was on my mind when I spoke with Jawad Alamiri. Jawad is an Iraqi activist and businessman who has lived in the U.S. since 1981, pursuing a bachelor and master degree in management engineering after leaving Iraq during a time when tyrannical rule caused the loss of three million people, including the death of his three brothers and a sister, and the imprisonment of one more brother and two more sisters. Since the collapse of the regime, Jawad has been helping the new wave of Iraqi refugees that have arrived in the U.S. since 2008. He conducts workshops on issues related to employment and the social and psychological difficulties that immigrants face in a new society. He extends his hands in help and support to all kinds of people, including those who supported the previous regime. I first met Jawad in late August 2016 at the Islamic Center of Philadelphia, where he arranged a memorial for Bajat. Months later, we spoke at his home. The topic of silence, he explained, was central to his and other activists' survival during Saddam Hussein's rule.
1: The uh, issue of silence, as I said before, it, it was a practice all over Iraq, even among those who have been under the control of Saddam, even the one who supported Saddam, even the one who were the ministers, you know, who were running a ministry in Iraq. We, you know, we see their stories and they were all practiced that silence in the front of their family and kids because they were they were all afraid of the dictator and how he had bugged everybody's office and how he bugged some homes and it created a, a total fear all over Iraq. And that's the way he, that's the way he rules, yeah. And the example of it, how, you know, how fear was a practice and, you know, in Iraq during that time, it was only one channel of TV yeah. and it all, it all under his control. And there was two, two and a half, three hours of news and it all evolved around, around him uh, innocently. An incident where a little girl sitting in the living room and her father was watching, you know, the news and he spit on TV because Saddam was on that news, and uh, she went to school the day after, and uh, the teacher asked the kids, you know, who had watched, you know, the news, and the little innocent girl says, yes, I did, and uh, she said, my father spit on TV, and uh, that information was a transfer to the intelligence office, and the father was arrested and was killed. So it, it's an example of, thousands of examples, how fear was practiced, and how silence has to be practiced. You know, to to, um, to survive, yeah.
0: Jawad went on to explain that his own survival depended not only on his silence, but his eventual disappearance from Iraq. Uh,
1: May 1980, I uh, I had two brothers and sisters were arrested. And we did not know their fate until until 2003. They, they were in mass grave in the Oscars, something like that, yeah. The sister was uh, poisoned because her husband was involved in bigger activity against the regime and they torture him in front of her and they torture her in front of him because they they want the name of his associates and he died out of torture. She was poisoned. Two days later she died of, of thallium poison. So this brought me into uh, a total fear not to be able to stay in you know, Iraq. like I was only, I was I was 17 years old.
0: It is. At this is. point, Jawad's youngest daughter, Amina, visited us in the den where we were recording. She immediately commented on the presence of the microphone, as if picking up where Bajat left off. Is it on? It's on, yeah. So if you want to sing something or you no. want to tell a story or whatever, you're welcome to...
3: I'm just going to say I love it rock. Oh. <laughs>
0: Ayuni, wow.
3: I love my family because they were born in Iraq. And Iraq is a really good, like, Muslim, Muslim is a really good religion.
0: Do you want to say your name? Amine. Amina. Amina. Beautiful name. name Amine. Amine. <laughs> Beautiful name. Her life and the lives of her three siblings was possible because of her father's strategic silence. And though they'd never visited Iraq, they too were being raised with love for that country's heritage, passed from displaced generation to displaced generation despite the tragedy of having to leave.
1: To be honest with you, Michael, it's our practice without using our tongue as the is what brought them to be, you know, in in this kind of path. So yeah.
0: silence is what brought your family Exactly,
1: did. exactly, exactly. There is a hadith from the one of our imams, Imam, Imam al Salih, he says be uh, a role model of the faith without using your without using your tongue. So be a person of a practice of your faith is well enough for you to see the people around you to see who you are and behave the same way. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's, it's we use it both parents. Amazing. Yeah. So in that in that time, my parents my parents I was I was they thought I would be next to be taken, so they prepared me for the passports and did paperwork and and the closest country for me to leave was Kuwait, so I got a tourist visa to go to Kuwait and uh, from there I would find a way to get to you know to finish my education. I um, September fourth I left Iraq to Kuwait. 1980. 1980. September 5th, Saddam's intelligence came to arrest me. So I was lucky by one day. Wow. Yeah, a new life for me by one day.
0: Jawad's story will continue in a later episode, picking up on his life in the U.S. where he could shed his silence, like a superhero sheds a secret identity, and become active in rallies and demonstrations against the brutality of the Iraqi government. The weather report is brought to you by Iraqi Hospitality. We tried to make you a guest before you decided to be an invader. Iraqi Hospitality. Taste the difference. Available in the USA on a limited basis. There's another hero with a secret identity, whose origin story begins in the Maniunk neighborhood of Philadelphia. Yaroub al-Obaidi was born in Diyala, Iraq, in 1977 and has lived in the U.S. since June 2016 after residing for many years in Malaysia. Yaroub was a designer, researcher, and author who worked as a lecturer at the College of Fine Arts at the University of Baghdad from 2004 until 2007. He redesigned the standard leather school bag for Iraqi school kids. He had to leave Iraq after some armed men came to his house asking for him. His family knew he had become a target. So, overnight, Yarum and his three brothers were sent to his aunt's house. The next day, they left Iraq for Malaysia, one of only three countries Iraqis could travel to without a visa. Yarum is a man full of ideas, from proposals for restaurants. Uh,
2: we make a restaurant called Big Balls. Big bowls everything is big. The dish, uh-huh. the glasses, the containers, all is big. Yeah, the portion is the same.
0: To a comedic film,
2: I, I call the sticky day. Uh-huh. Oh, because of some uh, some weather and the humidity. Uh-huh. Yeah, the day becomes so sticky, and uh-huh. you can't imagine how funny they are. They, I mean, the normal the normal day of working of school, uh-huh. but the people are sticky to each other.
0: When I met with Yaroub on September 11th, 2016, he told me of his ideas for an Iraqi comic book superhero.
2: Dolphin Man is a creative man, but he, he interesting in ocean and seas, environment, and to keep, to, to, to save the animal. Then he helped his father in the shop. he do uh, fixing the engines for the boats and uh, this one. Then he creates something or instrument allowed him to go like a dolphin. Then he started his way to save the animal life by uh, himself, by using his tools.
0: What struck me about Dolphin Man was the way the character connected with the story of the Iraqi and Syrian refugees fleeing wars back home and making the dangerous journey across the Mediterranean Sea, trying to reach safe havens in Europe. Many never reached their destinations. It made me think of Ilian Gonzalez, the six-year-old Cuban boy who, in 2000, became embroiled in an international immigration and custody battle between the United States and Cuba. On November 21, 1999, Elian and his mother Elizabeth and 12 others left Cuba in a small boat with a faulty engine, hoping to reach the United States. The boat ran into bad weather and took on water. Elizabeth and 10 others drowned, while Ilian and two other survivors floated at sea on two inner tubes until they were rescued by fishermen, who handed them over to the U.S. Coast Guard. Elian was temporarily given over to relatives in Miami, until he was dramatically repatriated to Cuba months later. Drawing a picture reflecting his experiences at sea, Ilian said that while he was clinging to the inner tube, he was surrounded by dolphins, who would push him up when he started losing strength. I wondered, could dolphin man rescue refugees lost at sea and help them reach their destinations? Recalling Ilian's story made me think of Alan's. Alan Kurdi was a three-year-old Syrian boy who drowned shortly after the small, overcrowded plastic boat carrying him and 15 other refugees departed Bodrum, Turkey, for Kos, Greece. His lifeless body was photographed after it washed up on a Turkish beach, and the photo quickly became a symbol of the European refugee crisis. His brother Ghalib and his mother Rahana also drowned. His father, Abdullah, survived, the space between Elian and Alan. Yaru brought up the refugee crisis in our conversation, and Dolphin Man's character continued to develop.
2: Somewhere nowadays, a lot of refugees, they lost their life in, yeah. uh, in the sea because they tried to reach yeah. the dreamland, but uh, so many of them uh, failed, so many of the of yeah. children. All, all the stories is very yeah. sad, but... Alan uh, already... Yeah, Alan. yeah. Maybe one dolphin tried to help him, but uh, he failed. Yeah. For that, and because, you know, among all the other refugees, his body came to the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many, they, they just... We never... See yeah, them. never see them, of course. Yeah. yeah. On July
0: 30th, 2017... During the Radio Silence performance on Independence Mall in Philadelphia, Yarub premiered the first episode of Dolphin Man, intended to channel the texture and style of early radio serials. The actors comprised Yarub himself, his brother Hussam as Dolphin Man and his secret identity Sam, his brother Mahaned as the corrupt sea captain and human trafficker, and U.S. veterans Jason May and Jin McGill Prather, as Sam's parents. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Amir Basmati Rice presents The Adventures of Dolphin Man. Born from witnessing too many souls lost at sea while fleeing the chaos of home for protection on distant shores, Dolphin Man is a refugee above water and a superhero below. No fake life vest or capsized boat will stop the efforts of Dolphin Man, to deliver those seeking refuge to safety. Let's tune in now to hear his origin story.
4: His name is Sam, short for Hassan. a nice and quiet guy. He's always quiet when he looks out of the sea. He believes that he can tell the sea all his secrets, and the sea will also tell him its own secrets. He has a connection with dolphins. They understand
0: one another. Oh, Great Sea. How far and deep you are. How many secrets inside you. How amazing you are in your extension. How huge you are in your breadth. How narrow you are for those who drown inside you. I feel so worried about Sam. It looks like he is always dreaming of something.
3: Don't worry, dear. He was born for a different time, not ours. Let him dream and discover the world in his own way.
0: <sighs> How can I help the ocean environment? How can I rescue people fleeing across the sea? How can I help the animals who want only to live peacefully in deep water? I should create something to help me dive deep into the ocean. I should do something, not just look at people and animals suffering and dying. Yeah, how
4: many people have boarded the boat now? Almost complete, boss.
0: We have more than 40 in our small boat, and I also loaded the dangerous liquid chemicals. This sounds great. We need this money soon. Boss, do you think the boat is good for all of them and the chemicals? I mean, can it hold them all? Seems the weather is bad.
4: <laughs> You're funny. We only need the money.
0: As long as we get paid, who cares? I need to swim 35 miles per hour to start my equipment. There's no other way. It's a challenge for Dolphin Man, but I have to do my very best. Yes! I finally got it! The equipment is working successfully and now it's time to put it to the test for a real rescue!
4: Sam swims under the water with a group of dolphins and sees the overloaded boat, filled with women and children about to capsize. Sam, with his group of dolphins in tow, alert the Coast Guard nearby. Guards notice them and believe there's something serious. Sam and the dolphins guide the guards to the now overturned boat. The dolphins swim and use their snouts to keep the terrified children afloat, and the coast guard pulls everyone from the boat safely aboard their vessel. A barrel of poisonous chemicals begins to sink, and will almost certainly break open once it reaches the ocean floor, contaminating every living creature for miles and miles. Dolphin Man activates his boosters, and after catching up to the fast sinking barrel, uses his awesome strength to push the barrel back up to the surface, where the Coast Guard loads it onto a lifeboat tethered to their ship. That was a close call. But for Dolphin Man, the mission is still not yet complete. The villainous captain of the boat and his henchmen are making an escape. Dolphin Man guides the Coast Guard to the bad guys who arrest them. Now Dolphin Man and his dolphin friends feel at peace. As they swim, it's as if they are dancing, celebrating their first success. For at least one day, they've rescued the most vulnerable, fleeing violence back home, and kept poisonous chemicals out of the ocean. But they know there is so much more to be done. Dolphin Man, the hero of the seas, promises to help as much as he can, anytime, Anywhere.
0: That was the premiere of The Adventures of Dolphin Man, brought to you by Amir Basmati Rice. For that crisp hakaka, there's only one brand that will deliver time and time again Amir Basmati Rice. Taste the difference. When I think of Dolphin Man as the product of Yarub's imagination, the imagination of a man who was a refugee, who fled violence and personal threats to his and his family's safety, I think of the origins of Superman. Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the creators of Superman, were children of Jewish immigrants and met while growing up in Cleveland. Their heritage and the anti-Semitism and xenophobia their families faced is thought to have influenced the creation of the Man of Steel, who represents an immigrant figure whose desire was to fit into American culture as an American. The creation of their superhero also takes the experience of being different and transforms it into a strength, as something that enriches the world and fuels an imaginary or visionary space. But, in the end, Superman still needed a secret identity, to fit in. As you heard, the first episode of Dolphin Man was brought to you by Amir Basmani Rice, a pseudonym for an existing brand. The owner of Amir is a wonderful Iraqi man living in the Philadelphia area with his wife and children. To protect his identity, we will also give him a pseudonym. Let's call him Samir. I first met Samir at Bajat's funeral. A day later, He brought me on the first of several wonderful adventures, tracing the Iraq that was on the American mid-Atlantic coast. These were road trips he took to sell his incomparable basmati rice to households and restaurants, looking to recreate the delicious hakaka, the toasted crust of the rice traditionally cooked in Iraq, and found at the bottom of the pot, a delicacy that is hard to master. I generated hours of recordings with Samir and our friend Mohammed, Recordings you will hear me describe, but you will not hear. In mid-June 2017, waiver forms were being collected from contributors to this radio program. Several of the main Iraqi participants requested the redaction of their recordings. What preceded this request was the reinstatement of the travel ban to five Muslim-majority countries introduced by the current U.S. administration. While Iraq is not on the list— Nobody in Philadelphia's mostly Islamic Iraqi community is naive enough to think this isn't a Muslim ban. For these people and their families, their fear was that participating in a project like Radio Silence could be seen as political and against the policies of the current administration and could disrupt their families' bids for asylum, residency, or citizenship. And so... To protect Samir and his fellow superheroes who have fled the violence of home, only to be faced with suspicion, fear, and violence in the place they fled to, we preserve their silence, their secret identities. In fearful day, in raging night, with strong hearts full, our souls ignite, when all seems lost in the war of light. Look to the stars, for hope burns bright. That's it for today's episode. Radio Silence is curated by Elizabeth Thomas. Special thanks to our project manager, Abigail Satinsky to our sound engineer, Nate Sandberg, to Warrior Writers and their director, Lavella Kalika, to all our Iraqi participants and the resettlement agencies that connected us to them, and to Jane Golden and everyone at Mural Arts. Our deepest gratitude and love to Bajat Wahed and his wife, Haifa Ibrahim Abdul Qadr. Original music for Radio Silence is composed by Hannah Khouri and performed with the Radio Silence Ensemble. Join us next week when we talk about the silence created by reticence, by shyness, by withdrawal, and by fear. Until then, good night, dear listener. For Radio Silence, I'm Michael Rakowitz, and this was Iraq.